The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 22. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and tonight is Taco Night, an evening as delicious as it is difficult to digest. Tonight's twisted tapestry of terror comes from a personal favorite author of mine, Sir Tom of House Far, wordsmith and noted soulsman who wields a vocabulary the size of a king's ultra-greatsword so elegantly you'd think it was little more than a parrying dagger. No joke, though, I learned about a hundred new words during this reading, and you will too. And I'm a word guy. I know a lot of words. I read them for a living. Wow. Color me humbled. Tom has a very distinct literary voice that evolves with every story he sends me. Tonight, you'll be served mostly Keats, with a sprinkle of Spencer, a dash of Angela Carter, simmered in, of course, a Poe and Lovecraft reduction with a refreshing finish that can only be described as, uh, Cormac McCarthy-ish. Well, that's a spicy meatball. I'm not gonna lie to you folks, this is a challenging story that is, at times, more of a poem. And that's how it was intended. If you feel like you have a particularly interesting take or interpretation, I very much encourage putting it in the comments section or on Facebook. That is what they're there for. Alright. Shall we? And yes, I'm well aware of the length of the intro, so I'll make the rest of it quick. You like the show? You don't like the ads? Become a patron. You'll get the show without the ads and a lot more shows. Not just this show, but other shows. Many, many shows since 2012. Oh, hello, darkness, my old friend, and done. And now, without further ado, from author Tom Farr, I give you 
the bat house. He turned away from the group and went quickly down the road and on into the woods. A voice called Bradley behind him, but he paid it no heed. He began to move faster and faster until he was almost running full tilt through the trees, the dark bulls clocking by on either side, malign and injurious shapes, among which he floundered in full flight. Gradually, he began to slow. He could feel something cold seeping through him like water through a rockery, and was suddenly aware that what he could see of his surroundings he did not recognize. The trees loomed enormously and closed him in. The spaces between them grown thick with tangled shrubs and thorn bushes, miracate coils of bramble against which dead leaves and other refuse had been blown by the winds and they are impaled. He slowed to a walk and then sat down on the trunk of a rather deformed tree that had fallen like some colossal android whose circuitry had shorted. His hands trembled and every breath raked white-hot coals through his lungs. He sat there for a minute or three, alert for any sound of voices in the cold autumn air, footsteps, laughter, old dry sticks crunching underfoot. Nothing. No noise at all, save his own breath and his pounding blood and a bird calling from some dim and bowered solitude, thin and fading, forever lost. At length, and with his breath still roaring like a furnace in his chest, he stood and looked around, cradled as he was in a grail of quietude and gathering dusk. Bare branches, bitter trees, damp and spongy earth lacquered with mulchy leaves and snaked with knobby, slug-white roots reared out of the miry black ground like alien tendrils testing for life. To the west lay a slope where his own harried passage had crashed through brush and bracken, and beyond this, he could see sourceless and spectral, the faint, toe-colored light of the sun. And here, he blinked, squinted hard into the wan unraveling of light with a feeling nigh to unease. Through the tangled latticework of tree branches engraved upon the sky, he could make out the dark angle of a steep roofline intersecting the horizon. As he looked, some small bird that was to his eye somehow ill-shapen tumbled over the roof, fluttered, and returned. Then another, then more. Hundreds of them, darting and checking across the watered sky. The rising apprehension in the pit of his stomach tightened like someone doing a knot. Without really knowing why, he set off towards the building. It just seemed to draw him the way a magnet draws iron. He began a careful ascent of the gently rising slope, picking his way among hornbeam and yew, the straw-colored light of sunset burning its way towards him. As he drew nearer to the building, his brain finally caught up with the noise he'd been hearing, but had not entirely registered. A constant, reedy squeaking. Incessant. Pervasive as of the numberless cries of some tremendous nest of mice. 
He paused uncertainly against the vine-encrusted trunk of a black and mournful cedar and glanced over his shoulder, as if perhaps he might turn back. The clearing from which he had climbed lay silent and still, a barren gallery told in blue-black shades of lengthening shadow that he couldn't help but feel had been just quit by another, some medieval ghost with eyes to the ground, hobbling with hymnal and cowl. He pushed the thought aside and turned and walked on. When he came over the crest of the slope, he understood. Not birds, after all. A few meters in front of him stood a new-looking metal sign that read, Bat House, in black letters on a yellow field. Below this, in slightly smaller letters, Do not enter without a bat license. All bats and their roosts are protected by law. Bradley lifted his eyes from the words and the sign to the house where it stood before him. It was laurel-colored weatherboard, with a sharply gabled bitumen roof fitted tightly to the fascia boards. A dark monolith, elevated by a quartet of stilts so that it resembled some strange angular bog raised up on tiptoe. A constant stream of bats darted to and fro from the bottom of the building and out of the tops of the trees like rough shapes of ash scattered by the luminous wind of sunset. He walked slowly towards the bat house as if all the years of his young life had been honed down to this single moment, to the cries of bats washing over him out of the darkling trees, primal and myth-laden, urging him on into the deepening shadows taking hold of the land. These red-eyed basilisks cast in miniature, scions of camazots, with the doomed princess Leotongi, their shrill quarrel seeping through the cracks of a darker world where light itself is at a premium, and those who dwell there have neither love nor affinity for it. There was a ladder beneath the building, rising dizzily to where a small hatch was set into the floor for access. He drifted to a halt just at the edge of the cool blue penumbra of the building's shadow proper. He stood, watching up at the ladder, at the dark, leathery shapes of bats dropping plumb and sheer from a sunless, slatted under-region of seething wings and blackness. A blackness studded with brightly pupiled rubies, myriad blood-red eyes that glowed like coals in a grate a panoply of otherworldly creatures to this sad corporeal medium forever bound, beasts with no other origin save for the dark itself, to which they are clan and kin. He woke that night from a dream of wings to a memory of the day that had gone before, of Lucas and the other boys. Hey, Four Eyes, where you going? Then George, grabbing him by the shoulder and pushing him down the crowded corridor towards the toilets, while the rest of the boys slouched along behind. The other kids, glancing away, studying their bags and their hands as intently as if they'd never seen them before, and those few who dared meet his eyes looking at him like a piece of unexploded ordnance, a bomb 
that is about to go off. He pushed back the covers and climbed out of bed, broke for his glasses and put them on, and went barefoot across the carpet to the window, pulling back the curtains to decode the star-stitched tapestry of night through fogged and bleary glass. His bedroom window faced the back of the house and looked out upon the neighboring gardens. He wiped a swath of condensation clear with his palm and caught a glimpse of a deep orange moon with bearing branches clawing at its face, like sorcerers casting spells to drag it closer to earth, an infernal candle flaring above a black and silver nightscape of television aerials and chimney pots. A thing so huge he felt as though he could reach up and touch it. Far to the east, a pale band of stars shone and flared like spiracles through which the night itself had drawn a covert breath. The gardens with their lawns and sheds were all shadow and moonlight, and where ponds and birdbaths stood, they quaked in the moon's ochreous crucible, like softly stirring vats of quicksilver. He turned away. The light through the window was just enough to lighten the walls and summon a few familiar shapes from the otherwise murk of the bedroom. Wardrobe, television, the long white boxes stacked against the far wall. Boxes full of comic books and paperbacks and old hand-down penny dreadfuls with yellowed pages, as cracked and brittle as the memories of those who'd handed them down. An assemblage of fiction from which he could conjure up a world of the weird and fantastical to his order. He crossed to the boxes and retrieved a dog-eared paperback, the cover of which was embellished with some ghoul or gremlin scaling a crumbling stone wall, and opened it to a page at random. The pale watching moon. The horrible shadows. The grotesque trees. The titanic bats. The antique church. After a while, he returned to bed, but he could not sleep. He lay in the darkness, staring up at the ceiling with a ringing emptiness loud in his ears, and the moon's timorous radiance tiptoeing first across the carpet, and then the bedclothes, winking off his upturned glasses where they lay on the bedside table. Pale and skeletal shapes slunk along the fringes of his consciousness, nightmare hounds trotting to and back, just beyond his vision, their gleaming white teeth shining in the cold blue light of an unknown astronomy. Eventually, he began to drift. Then, he awoke. He heard a bang on the window and came to, a heavy wingbeat as of some giant bird trapped in the room. Heart thudding at the base of his throat, he raised himself up on his elbows just in time to catch a glimpse of some dark and bat-shaped creature as it veered and fluttered away across a duly furbished disk of moon, like the shadow of a moat in a vacuous eye or a lone animalcule seen on a slide. The next day, Bradley left school early by way of a spurious sick note, scribed by a credulous nurse, grateful to whatever god or deity dealt his hand that, for once, his cards hadn't come straight from the bottom of the deck. As he passed along the back of the English block, 
He glanced into a classroom window and saw Lucas gazing abstractedly out, his eyes unused and vacant, like holes in a mask. Then, the eyes cut to Bradley in an instant of recognition, and he could see the pasty hatred rising up in their depths. The familiar of the coarse laughter, the blocked doors, the beatings he couldn't escape. Features encoded with no expression save for that of promised threat. Lucas mouthed some unheard imprecation and made to rise from his desk. Bradley hurried on. They arrived at the woods well before sunset and with time enough to retrace yesterday's steps in the fuller light of that breezy autumn day. He left the road in the same spot, making his way slowly through the disrobed trees, a dank, serried gloom smelling of wet leaves, animal dens, the season's many rains. The sun was faint and foreign to the bowering canopy of branches. The way was at once unknown and vaguely familiar, like a landscape glimpsed in a dream. There were trees he recognized and trees he did not, a sunlit bank of coppery bracken, a gray squirrel vanishing up the trunk of a sycamore tree. He went on. Soon, the carpet of damp leaves thinned to a loamy mulch, and then he was ascending a slope grown thickly with brittle vegetation that broke at his passing, and it was hard going until he emerged at the summit to pick his way through a spinny of saplings and brush where a brace of pigeons exploded out and fared away with harried wingbeat. Before thirty minutes passed, he came upon the bat house again, a dark and depthless woodcut jigsawed from the neutral gray of the sky. It looked somehow out of place among the naked trees, as if somewhere there had been some random graphical glitch, some curious aberrance in the source code of that place. He studied the building, an asylum for the damned or otherwise undone, wherein they might seek shelter from the earth and all its weathers, its ever-present fireball of a sun. House of Mother Church and her dark matrons, disciples to the coming dusk. But where in this occult and aberrant tableau does dwell the Christ, the Father God, and at what black hour of the night does the liturgy of the Eucharist begin? This time, there was nothing to hold him back. No seed of doubt to fester and flourish and drop its bitter fruits. It was about three quarters of the way up the ladder when he heard the voice. Soft and sibilant, to set his very bones on edge. To seize his heart with claws of clammy fear. Hurry up, boy. Liquid syllables hissed out, uncoiling down the back of his brain like Indian ink, dispersing in limpid water. A stain extinguished in encephalic depths, or perhaps to color them indelibly with some dark clarity. Numberless voices, intoning his name as one. He froze. The smooth metal rungs of the ladder suddenly slippery beneath his sweating palms. He glanced down at the much-diminished ground below, and when his head began to violently reel at this sudden unspooling of distance, he forced himself to look up again 
at the hatch ahead, from which he had thought the voice had issued, although it had sounded as if it had been speaking in his head. He could hear a faint murmuring of squeaks, rustlings, a slow creak in the wooden boards directly above him, as of someone unseen adjusting their weight. Suddenly, he became very conscious of the ladder through his shoes, and the nothingness that yawned to engulf him should he but misplace a single step. To see the bathhouse yanked upwards, sucked away to where the light merged seamlessly with the vaulted heavens as he himself plummeted towards the surface of the earth. He squeezed his eyes shut tight and opened them again, and began to essay a slow descent. He was just over halfway down when he glanced up and saw that the hatch was open. A dark, atavistic portal, but dimly defined against a darker plane of shadows. A wind with teeth in it swept down and tugged at his clothing with a long, hissing sound like rainfall. Like someone whispering his name. Bradley. 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 By the time he'd reached the ground, the bats were beginning to defile down to the slats beneath the house, a fluttering black ribbon rapidly thickening to a stream. Thousands of squeaking fiends, pug-nosed and prick-eared with hot red eyes like shards chipped off rubies calling first each to the other, and then calling to him, brother to brother. Their voices, much like those innumerable cries old King Papil must have heard prior to being eaten alive by mice. He stood for a while and watched the dusk unlock the truer form of night and fiery increments of burnt orange and cadmium yellow. And then, finally... With his breath pluming whitely in the cold air, he climbed back up the ladder and entered into the bathhouse. And when at length he came back down, the moon in her gauzy silver clothes was nigh to rise, and the bats were frenzied and seemed to feed on the light itself. And he knew what it was that he must do. Bradley pushed himself to his knees, head clouded by the force of the punch. Bright taste of blood in the back of his mouth like an old penny lodged beneath his tongue. It had begun to rain. The puddles on the ground were full of rings and leaden with the sky's splenetic reflection. His face felt strangely naked for the interminable moment in which he groped about in the mud for his glasses. An old pair... He'd worn them because the left lens of his other pair was cracked by a similar punch, a similar hand. He waited, breathing heavily with his glasses cupped protectively in one hand. Someone said, fucking loser, when someone else laughed raucously. He heard the faint, wet sucking sound of shoes and mud, footsteps crossing the field, gone. When he fumbled the glasses back onto his face, the gray and rain-bleared world swam back into focus. 
the empty football pitch with its dirty white goalposts forlorn and netless. To the east, a windswept tennis court, where rain fell slantwise in the wind like rain falling to the pale yellow cone of a street lamp at night. There was no other soul about, but neither bird nor beast in sight. At length he rose and started off towards the science block, and then stopped. He closed his eyes and lifted his face to the sky, letting the rain course down his cheeks. It felt cold, calming, a palliative to ease, if only briefly, the seething turmoil of his mind. He saw then in the vast estate of darkness that unfolded behind his eyes the vaster, more antique darkness of the Bat House, an alien dark, and now a familiar one that encompassed the whole of his consciousness. A pale and lithesome thing, crabbing sideways on loose-joined hands and knees, swinging its head this way and that and tasting the air with slitted nostrils. Injured. Burned. Hidden from the hateful sun. Emerging from the utter blackness like some surreal, translucent fish. Rising from pelagic depths. Its blind sockets hovered mere inches from where he crouched in a protective buttress of grayish-purple dusk light falling through the lone window high in the western wall. In the glass cage of its chest, he could see the strange flat book of its lungs, its darkly pulsing heart. Bradley. Bradley. Bradley! He opened his eyes. Mr. James, his science teacher, beckoned from a nearby doorway. Expression bewildered behind black Woody Allen glasses. What are you playing at? He asked as Bradley trudged soddenly along beside him, bedraggled and mud-slathered and absolutely soaked, as if he were the sole grim survivor of some latter-day biblical flood engendered by God himself to cleanse this world that he had created, but that would no longer oblige his bidding. Look at the state of you, Mr. James continued, shaking his head. You're like a drowned rat. And what's happened to your glasses? Bradley grinned, shook his head, and said nothing. No, not a rat. He scarce could tell where his being ended and that of the thing in the bat house began, nor did he any longer care. He guessed that the truth of the matter was darker yet as such truths are wont to be. Neither did he know the name for a sudden encapture of darkness within his beating heart, but he nursed it nonetheless, kept its tenebrous flame like some tonsured friar of yore, attendant to the frail light of his votive lamp, making holy inquiry of whatever god or deity was willing to be inquired of. Morphons boundless in form, and meant for other mediums than this. Things that watch, things that wait, things that prowl the nether dark where each and all must wander soon or late. He sat down at the back of the classroom and took off his coat and hung it on the back of his chair. Mr. James vanished into the corridor, 
then reappeared, wheeling an old overhead projector on a plastic trolley. Set it up. Dim the lights. You there, pull down the blinds at the back. See a time-lapse film of rusted walls ribbed with fast-spreading molds. Angular shapes, vibrant in color and aspect both. Blacker spores gnawing outwards like cigarette burns in a tawdry reel of film. A car struck badger rotting by the roadside. Stiff, gray fur scalloped with serrate growths and pulpy white clusters of fungi sprouting incessantly among the lifeless folds of its flesh. Their industrious mutations festering in the lightless interstices. The thin and fluted regions that do exist between marrow and dust. Bradley stared at the furry growth spreading across the screen. The titanic bats. The antique church. Soon, he thought. Soon. It was twenty till four that afternoon when George and Lucas finally emerged onto the footpath ahead of him, laughing, smoking, stopping to spit at a big ginger tomcat that hissed loudly before promptly vanishing over a fence. The first rock, with its freight of pent-up anger, struck Lucas with such force that it spun him sideways and against a low brick wall. The second rock hit George dead center in the stomach as he turned to see, folding him up like something with hinges. Bradley let fall his armful of rocks and stood and waited for the pair to partially recover themselves. Then, just as Lucas's enraged eyes locked with his, he turned and set off at a dead run down the road and past the garage half stumbling around a corner into the gridlocked crawl of after-school traffic and on towards the woods. He could hear car horns blaring behind him, and by the time he reached the first of the trees and ran on into them, they could hear enraged voices shouting threats and insults and elaborate invectives. What punishment lay ahead was going to be long-winded and extremely painful, the voices informed him. His facial features would be rearranged to the point of anonymity. His bloody testes severed with who knew what cruel implement. No sanctuary nor hiding place in this world or any other for such doomed souls as he. He moved quickly through the trees while the day waned, down leafy paths he'd come to know as well as the veins in his hand. The sky beyond the bare branches flushed red, then gold, and he could more sense than see the last of the light gathering in the west. The sun, by some sorcery or by some dark intercession, wrenched from its right course and so condemned to premature endarkenment. The woods were at once sepulchral and sacred, imbued with a grain and quality of light reminiscent of that which shines through stained glass saints on bright midwinter days. Now and then he paused to listen and to compass his pursuers, to hear their voices, to urge them on. After a few more minutes he came out of the woods looking covertly all about, 
and darted across the clearing to the bat house. Bats were tolling out of the dust, and the dying sun was bleeding out all over a jagged tree line that looked as stark and dimensionless as something burned into wood. By now, Bradley was panting and lightheaded, his breath coming hard and fugitive, like some small, evasive animal he could barely grasp. But when he reached the base of the ladder, he did not pause, nor did he hesitate would simply begin to climb. Lucas stumbled out of the trees with George floundering on the slope behind him. His shoulder throbbed fiercely. His legs ached from running. But his anger was like metal heated blue-white by whatever internal forge shaped his passions, and he would not allow it any chance to cool. Come on, he called, glancing back at George where he staggered upright over the crest of the slope like some rough prototype of Adam rising from the primordial slime. We gotta get that mother f- Lucas had halted. There was a stunned and vaguely disoriented expression on his face. A building loomed above him like the very negation of light itself. A dark shape whose features he could not discern save for four slender legs rising into the air when the bulk of a house sat atop them and what he thought might be sixty or seventy feet high. He didn't know what it was. Some sort of lookout post, perhaps. Or maybe a house for birds or wildlife preservation. It seemed to him to have been constructed from obsidian or some other smooth black stone that gleamed not in the last of the light, but drank in, as if all the world's disparate darks had here been given home and concrete form. All the preterite darks of epics gone, of mankind's storied past, the ancient dark of Mesopotamia and the dark of rock-cut Ptolemaic tombs, the dark of Henge, the dark of Ziggurat, the dark of Barrow, Cairn, and Tumulus. What's that? At the sound of George's voice, the fugue released him, and he shook his head, confused, brain fog with names and images he neither knew nor recognized. The lizard in him hissed a warning. Then the ape resumed operation. Uh, I don't know, he said. Look. A ragged trail trodden through the damp carpet of leaves. They followed it to the base of the ladder, and then stopped and looked at each other and craned their necks to peer up at the underside of the building. There was silence, and then the silence was broken by a long, drawn-out creak. Something pale flashed briefly, then subsided into the shadow like the back of a fish surfacing in a murky pond, or a bloodless visage composed behind darkened glass. Who was that? Yeah. Had to be. Oh, shit. We gotta get that fucker. I know. Right. Let's go. 
George nodded and glanced at the ladder with caged nervousness. By now, the ape was banging its drums in brute anticipation. Oh, for fuck's sake, said Lucas, pushing George aside. Just get out of the way. The further he climbed, the smaller the trees below became, like plastic trees disposed upon a train table, a model landscape beheld from above. His hands ached and his shoulders did too, but he was more worried about his feet, for his shoe soles were very wet and worn so smooth as to have little grip. He decided that if he did fall, he would grab onto George. At least that way, he wouldn't go alone. He glanced down to check on the other boy's progress and was seized with a sudden loathing. A maniacal urge to lash out with his foot and sent him plummeting to the distant world below. He'd hide the body in some slimy bed of leaves or in a wild copse with the branches bowered blackly even in the blazing days of summer. Hidden glades known only to Sunanos and Pan and to the most ancillary disciples of those sprawling woods. When Lucas neared the top of the ladder, he paused. There was a narrow hatch and the hatch hung open, and something emerged from within. Oh, fuck. They almost raised a hand to slap the bat away, but fought back the urge and turned his head to one side with the ladder rung locked in his fingers, watching the dark, furry shape fold its wings and dive and veer away on some esoteric isobar of its own devising. Jesus, was that a bat? George called from beneath, a subtle edge of panic to his voice. Lucas ignored him. He was almost at the hatch now, hauling himself up into its Stygian depths. Where the fuck are you? He screamed, shattering a horde of silence as dense as water, and so violating the careful ceremonies of stillness. And shadow, the solemn rites enacted in that cloistral dark, and what malevolent intelligences left aghast and speechless at the willful desecration, what blighted gods and demiurges, things of which the histories of men have heard but whispered rumor, things unknowable and rarely beheld. For what witness could survive such a witnessing without being himself sublimated to the yawning abyss therein? He waited. The darkness breathed and fluttered. The darkness inlaid with fang and wing. His eyes couldn't see anything but the ruby fire glint of myriad other eyes. Get out of here, he said shrilly, his voice tending away into the utter blackness, like an echo relayed down Spillean depths. There was a flash of movement in his periphery. A shape reared briefly out of the dark, then vanished back into the deeper gloom. It was pale and naked and its achromatic skin oddly luminous like something cellophane-wrapped, or the gossamer flesh of a jellyfish, 
inexplicably fashioned into a vaguely human likeness by some demented cosmetic surgeon. There he is, said George, striding past him. Over there. No, wait! But George was gone. Lucas stood for a moment, deciding whether or not to follow him, whether to stay or to flee. And then, someone screamed. A harsh, terror-stricken sound that bristled every hair on his body and was snatched away to silence as suddenly as it had begun. This was followed by other noises. A sharp crack and a thick, fleshy ripping, like someone tearing a leg off a chicken. The air flushed with the harsh red tang of iron, and something hit the floor with a loud, meaty thud, and came bumping through the dark towards him. Oh shit. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. He stumbled backwards and nearly stepped straight through the open hatch. He felt sick. A chasm of unreckonable depth had opened up inside of him. He looked first at the hatch and the yawning void below, and then at the wall of darkness coagulating about him and the head severed at the neck, which had come rolling out of it. His gorge rose warm and acidic in the back of his throat, and in that long, elastic interval of dread he thought he might have seen death come up in George's eyes like a face at a window at night, or perhaps his soul sucked out of them in ectoplastic volution. But what he saw was nothing at all. Nothing save the bottomless black maw of nothingness itself. As he stared with equal portions horror and fascination, the pale shape crept forward on all fours to the very edge of the light, dark blood slathering its foul, translucent flesh. It lifted its head and pressed its face into his, and then the light vanished, and the bats went berserk. Beyond the walls of the bat house, the sanguinous light of the dying sun burned cool and red. Bradley climbed down the ladder and walked across the clearing towards the black autumn trees where they stood in an ossified freeze against the moon-silvered depths of night. A huge, bone-colored disk of moon was just clearing the horizon above the tree line and looked for all the world like a dismal oculus to some midnight realm beyond. And when he paused at the edge of the trees with the light shining on and through him, he turned to look back and saw the bathouse stamped in dimensionless silhouette against the star-blown heavens. Secret. Heraldic. Dark as anything that ever was. Its baleful incumbents frenzied and riotous 
in the wake of the night-killed sun. You've been listening to The Bat House by author Tom Farr. Tom Farr is a British writer of horror and weird fiction. Sometimes he writes poems, too. He has traveled extensively throughout China and Japan and credits the works of Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft as inspiration for his writing, as well as Mark C. Danielewski's House of Leaves and Daniel Merrick's The Blair Witch Project for his interest in experimental works of horror. When he isn't reading or writing, he's usually cycling or trying to improve his 5 and 10 kilometer run times. Either that, or he's playing Dark Souls. <laughs> he's new to Twitter and doesn't know how to use it yet. And neither do I. But you can hopefully reach him at TFARHorror. That's at T F A R R. Horror. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive, dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. 
The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. <laughs>